please calm your hearts and your minds for the reading of today's scripture. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. You can be found at page uh, 1016 of your scripture uh, Bibles. It's also available on the mantras behind me. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so that to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect for this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debaucheries, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Just keep your Bibles open to the book of 1 Peter as we pray together this morning. God, it is a, a dangerous thing for us, a risky thing for us, um, to ask that you would move in such a way uh, that our eyes are open, that our hearts are truly convicted, that our hearts are broken for what breaks your heart. But that is what we ask this morning. It's a dangerous thing because we know that with eyes open and hearts broken, we will be called out of our comfort zone. We will be called into more difficulty than we perhaps would have planned for our, our lives, for ourselves. But God, we ask that, that you would provide us the strength to follow where your son is calling us to go. God, give us the strength to hear your word and obey it. We ask this this morning in the name of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. I'm sure that if you're like me, you have each felt the <clears throat> immediate anxiety of realizing that you're late for something important. We all know what it's like to oversleep. Not last night, right, because we all got an extra hour of sleep, so we all woke up this morning feeling bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and we're all going to stay awake through the sermon. But we all know what it's like to oversleep, to open our eyes and see the sunlight streaming in through the window, to take one breath of calm, just enjoying of a morning, and then instantly realize that you're supposed to be awake already. 
And in that moment, no one has to tell you to hurry. The urgency of the moment itself drives you to hurry. And you fly out of bed, you brush your teeth for about 15 seconds, you finish your shower before the water has even gotten hot, and you run out the door with your shirt misaligned, misbuttoned because you're in such a rush to get where you are supposed to be. It's a stressful feeling and one that motivates you to get moving. Throughout the book of 1 Peter, we've looked at passages that were written to Christians in the first century to motivate them to pursue Christ while they lived in a world who had rejected him. It's a book full of reminders about God's calling for his church and an honest look at the tug of war that exists between the church and a cultural environment that does not know Christ or honor him as its Lord. But as we turn toward the end of this short letter, Peter is becoming even more bold in his declaration to the church. He wants his audience, he wants his, the readers of this letter to understand the urgency of the moment and to jump into action as a response to that urgency. Peter said back in chapter 1, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Some people in his audience had already felt the sting of persecution, but not everyone. And it makes sense because this letter is actually written to a group of churches in what is now the, the nation of Turkey. He's writing to a, a group of local churches with this short book, and not all of them have had the same experience. Some have had it worse than others, facing social and economic pressure and even violence in response to their new faith. But Peter has been encouraging Christians to persevere in the face of suffering. And now in the opening of chapter 4, he's going a step further, motivated by the reality that the end of all things is at hand. It's a sudden realization for most of the church that we are living in the end of redemptive history. That is the last chapter of the story that God is telling about his redeeming glory. And that sudden realization that we see in this passage is a good reason to take action, to get serious about following Christ, even if that means running headlong into the suffering that some believers had already tasted at this point in history. Chapter 4 opens with the reminder that Christ himself had suffered in the flesh. So those who are called to follow him are called to get ready for what it will mean to actually do so. And so on the basis of Christ's suffering, Peter says, arm yourselves. Reading this and knowing what we already know about the persecution inflicted on the church in the first few centuries, it might be easy for us to jump to some conclusions about what it means for believers to arm themselves. We have a tendency sometimes, as Bruce mentioned last week, to have some kind of a persecution complex. Living in a post-Christian culture like we do here in New England, it can be easy from time to time to feel like we are living behind enemy lines, surrounded by adversaries who we must conquer or else we will be conquered by them. This verb that Peter uses in this passage is often, most often used in military contexts as soldiers and armies ready themselves for battle, and it seems that that is exactly what he wanted to call to mind by using this word, soldiers getting ready for war. But facing the real persecution 
for following Christ that the first century church was beginning to endure, they are not told to sharpen their swords, but to arm herself with the same way of thinking as Jesus, who did not conquer with an army, who did not go into battle with a sword. Peter is not rallying the church to rise up and demand her right to worship. He isn't even building them up to defend themselves, but to arm themselves with a different kind of strength altogether, one that God provides by calling us to follow Jesus in the path that he himself walked before us. It isn't what we expect Peter to say after telling Christians to arm themselves. And I think that's because it's not our instinct to follow Jesus. It is certainly not our instinct to follow him into suffering. Our instinct is to become defensive, to arm ourselves with the things that can protect us, to justify ourselves, or to flee from the threats like the ones that Peter and the church in the first century were facing. But instead, we're called to arm ourselves with Jesus' way of thinking, which was one of strength in love and humble sacrifice. Paul describes what this way of thinking is for us in the book of Philippians in chapter 2 when he encourages the church in Philippi to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that is Jesus's way of thinking, which we are called to arm ourselves with. The call to follow Christ and to arm ourselves with his way of thinking is a call to love those who hate us, to see our culture as something that God desires to redeem, and to be willing to suffer for the sake of that redeeming work. That is what Jesus did. That is the mind that he had that we are called to arm ourselves with. Since he himself was rejected by the world, should we expect that bearing his name and following in his footsteps, we will not be similarly rejected? Peter has reached the point in this letter when, according to one scholar, he proclaims to all believers, to the entire church, be prepared to embrace not only submission to Christ, but also suffering as an aspect of your calling. The words of 1 Peter echo the words of Jesus that Peter heard firsthand, that anyone who desires to follow him must first take up his cross and then come follow him. It is a daunting calling. So no wonder Christians throughout the history of the church have needed the words of this passage as a wake-up call to sense the urgency of the moment and get a move on. And that's what this passage is really all about, waking up to the realization that it is much later than we thought, that it is past time to get serious about following Christ where He leads and in the strength that He provides us to do so. And as we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus, God is at work in us. Peter signals that by declaring that Whoever has suffered has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh 
no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, people sometimes get confused by this verse. But we know that Peter is clearly not saying that anyone who has endured suffering has become a perfect person somehow. But there is a relationship between arming ourselves with Christ's way of thinking and becoming people who know and pursue the will of God. Our willingness to suffer with Christ, following Him through trials and through pain and into glory, is itself freedom from slavery to sin. Galatians chapter 5 makes a very similar point when Paul declares that those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's powerful language that's designed to make us think. Because there is a fundamental break that occurs when, following Christ, we lay aside the passions and the desires of our fallen nature, desires for self-preservation, for personal glory, for our selfishness and our desire for control. When we follow in Christ's footsteps, we say along with Him to our Heavenly Father, not my will but yours be done. And we crucify the flesh, our old life, which was enslaved to sin by following Christ. And as we do so, we are freed to live for the will of God. I remember a few years ago, um, several years ago, a friend of mine in Texas bought a new car. And it was the first new car that he had ever owned. Maybe you have had this type of experience before, the very first new car that you've ever owned. And to him, this was a really, really big deal. And so he took really good care of this car. He washed it like every weekend. He kept it cleaned out like he didn't let junk pile up inside the car. He made sure to clean out space in his garage so that he could park it inside at night. But in the part of Texas where Jessica and I lived, uh, we would get hailstorms every so often. Some of them were really bad hailstorms. In fact, hailstorms so bad that I, I knew someone else whose car was literally total by hail, uh, just by a rainstorm that came by, totaled her car. And so every time that storm clouds would roll in, this friend of mine would rush out to the parking lot uh, of the church where we worked together in order to move his car under some cover somewhere. But eventually, he wasn't fast enough. The storm came faster than he predicted, and the hail fell and left some dents in his car. And knowing how much trouble that he had gone to in order to keep that car in perfect condition, anyone would have expected him to be absolutely distraught by the hail damage. But when I asked him about it a few days later, he surprised me when he said, you know, it's actually kind of nice because I don't have to be a slave to my car anymore. It's not perfect anymore. So, like, that, that, that ship has sailed. So I don't have to stress over it like I used to. It took losing what he had fought to protect in order to recognize the hold that it had on him. And even though that's kind of a silly example, I think it serves to illustrate the point that Peter is making right here. Willingness to follow Christ into suffering is freedom from slavery to our human passions and freedom to pursue God's passion for the world. When we willingly lose the desires that we used to fight to protect, we are able to see the grip that our human passions had on us. And even though, <clears throat> excuse me, even though laying them down is hard, 
really hard, perhaps even painful to do, we understand the urgency of the moment and what's at stake. And if we do understand that urgency, no one will need to tell us to hurry, to lay them down. And that's what the rest of this passage is really all about. The call of Christ, according to these verses, is a call to more than simply laying something down. It's, it's more than a call to turn away from sin and death. It is a call to abundant life in Christ to the glory of God. And even though the Bible and Christianity are often thought of as basically a bunch of rules written by a God who hates fun, this passage helps us see that we are called to receive more than we lay down. And that is the driving force behind what motivates us to deny our human passions. It's the sunlight coming in through the window that makes us spring out of bed. It's later than we think. And Peter says, the time is past. It's as if he's saying, get up, get a move on. It's time to get serious because it's later than you think. There was a time before you knew God's will that you lived for yourself. That time is over now. And the list of behaviors that he uses to make this point could just as easily describe much of the world that we live in today. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is what it looks like, according to this passage, to live for myself. Seeking to satisfy every desire and every urge and to put my human passions first. And as I look at these words... I'm struck by the observation that Peter is not condemning the outside world who is ignorant of God's will and living in sin that they don't know is sin. He's speaking to the church, to believers, struggling with what they know is contrary to God's will. That is a sobering realization because it forces us to face the fact that we are the ones who need to hear it. We are the people this passage was written for. We are the ones who need this wake-up call. We need to hear that even though we come to church, even though we write checks to Christian charities, even though we pray and read the Bible and do Christian things, we all still have human passions to crucify every day. The struggle that the ancient church faced persists because it is hard to deny the passions of our fallen nature. One example of what I mean by this. Research that's been published by the Barna Group indicates that over 60% of church-going Americans regularly access pornography online. 60%. The tragic reality is that the church often looks just like the world around it, pursuing the same human passions but with some Christian activity layered on top. The difference is that the world outside the church does not know God's will, and we do. So just as Peter encouraged the first century church in the ancient Near East to wake up and turn toward Christ, I hope that we receive the same encouragement in these words this morning, because the time is past. Now is the time to get serious, to hear God's voice and turn away from the sin that so easily entangles us, whatever that is for you. 
But I know that like many things that pastors say, that's easier said than done. And I think it's easier said than done for two reasons. The first is simple. We love sin. We revel in it. This passage calls it our passion for a reason. It is the longing of our hearts. And even if we want to stop, it's hard to lay aside what we love and long for. The Apostle Paul made this point powerfully in Romans 7 when he said, I do not understand my own actions, for I, I do not know what I want, but I do the very for I do not know what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. But as this passage in First Peter makes clear to us, we are able to do this, the hard work of laying aside our human passions because what we receive in Christ is greater than what we are commanded to lay down. What we turn toward is more satisfying than what we are commanded to turn away from. And savoring Christ, we will see our human passions for what they really are, sad imitations of what we were designed to rejoice in. Secondly, though, I think this is easier said than done because we live in a society that says denying Human passions is fundamentally wrong. In 21st century Western culture, there is no higher right, no more noble objective than being true to yourself and living your truth. And in the age of expressive individualism that we live in, this verse is not only backward and antiquated, but it is a denial of fundamental human rights. Because for most of our society, the chief end of man is to pursue your own path. Trevin Wax, who some of you will remember was our speaker at the Life on Mission conference a couple years ago, describes the purpose of life in our culture as the, the objective is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world, forging that identity regardless of the guidance of family friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or religious authorities, and what they might have to say. Tim Keller describes it as the idea that identity comes through self-expression by discovering one's most authentic desires and being free to be one's most authentic self. The highest good in our society is individual freedom and self-definition based on what makes us feel good or fulfilled, and forces that restrict that personal autonomy are viewed with suspicion. There are good examples of how pervasive this idea is in our culture literally everywhere. And the, the classic recent example of this is from the movie Frozen, which I cannot imagine you haven't seen because it seems like everyone in the world has watched this movie. If you have kids, you have it memorized. In the movie Frozen, the main character learns that it is only by looking inward that she can find her true identity and purpose, and that her heart will guide the way, even if everyone around her is telling her to go a different way. And it's a message we resonate with, because all of us love being told that we are the master and author of what is good. We like the idea that what our hearts desire, we should pursue. 
And the notion that we should deny those passions is hard to hear, maybe even offensive. And that's why, as these verses warn us, the world around us will respond with surprise and mockery and criticism. Surprise because coming to Christ produces significant life change. Like Moses, who, after visiting with God, was literally glowing in the dark, we become people whose lives reflect the one who's shown us grace, who has made us alive again and set us free from sin's grip. The redeemed heart produces character that is wholly different from what once defined our lives. So people will be surprised at that transformation. And taking God at His Word and following Christ where He leads will always result in strange looks. Imagine how people would react if we took seriously Jesus' advice to gouge out an eye rather than to let it lead us into sin. Imagine how strangely people would think of us if, taking seriously the pernicious threat of pornography in our lives, we tossed our smartphones and our computers. The radical obedience to Christ that Scripture calls us to will always surprise the world who does not see Him as its Lord. And that surprise will often turn to criticism. And for the follower of Christ, that is exactly what we must face. Because left to myself, I will do exactly what my heart desires, and following my own path, I will wander further and further and further from Christ, further and further and further from glory and true eternal joy and satisfaction. My heart is not the best judge of where I should go. My Creator is. And even if that is an offensive message in our culture, we understand it. Like, we understand this concept. Recently, some of you know that Jessica and I recently got a dog, and even though she is super, super cute, she is pretty stupid. <laughs> um, and one of her favorite things to do is to eat leaves and grass and pretty much anything that she can find in our backyard. And among the plants in our yard are a couple of rhubarb plants, which are, I don't know whether you know this, poisonous for dogs to eat. And every time we walk past those plants, she like goes for it. She wants it so bad. I think she wants it because she's not allowed to have it. And so it's this, this really tempting, like beautiful rhubarb plant that just looks so delicious to her. And we don't let her have it because we don't want her to die. And you could say, and I'm sure that she thinks, that I am denying her what she loves and what she longs for, but in reality, I am protecting her. And that's what this passage is encouraging us to understand. God is giving us this word and making known His will because He is protecting us, not just from the temptations of life, but from Himself, because one day God will judge the living, and the dead. The fact that all people will give account to God one day of the lives that they lived is the motivation that Peter points to, not only for enduring the maligning of those who don't know Christ, but also for pursuing Him actively ourselves. Because even though knowing that God is a judge is an intimidating reality, for those who are in Christ, it is no cause for fear. Instead, it is the great hope of the gospel that one day we will stand before God's throne, and as He surveys our lives in judgment, 
looking at us, he will see the righteousness of his Son imputed to us in faith, and he will declare that in Christ's name we are worthy to receive life and glory. Peter conveys some of the urgency of the situation here by reminding his readers and us that God is ready to judge the living and the dead, and that the end of all things is at hand. The situation is considerably more urgent than we often realize. And knowing that God is ready to judge is what helps us grasp how high the stakes really are. In the same way that no one has to tell you to hurry when you look at the clock and realize that you're late for something important, no one has to explain the urgency behind the reminder that God is ready to bring justice to the world. And in light of this declaration, Peter closes this passage with some examples of what we take up as we follow Christ, as we pursue Christ. Therefore, he says, pursue these things. God's will for his people, because God is a judge and because time is short. First, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There is a priority given to the mind, as both of these words have to do with keeping our heads on straight. And the word translated self-controlled in many of our Bibles is a specific reference to control of our minds, to be focused, to be sensible. It's the same word that's used in Luke 8 to describe the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons. He had been running around without clothes on, living in a graveyard, and generally acting like an insane person. But after his encounter with Jesus, we are told... People were amazed to see him sitting calmly and in his right mind. The same idea is conveyed by the term sober-minded. There is something about an encounter with Jesus that brings us into our right mind and sobers us up. And the reason Peter gives for this is that we, we should pursue sober-mindedness is for the sake of your prayers, which does not mean that otherwise we won't be able to pray or that God will ignore our prayers, but that in Christ and in our right mind, we will be able to pray with a gospel perspective. We will pray prayers that God desires to answer because they are shaped by his heart for the world. That sober-mindedness will not always make sense to the world around us. Just as our refusal to revel in sin will be met with surprise and mockery, our determination to live and think with a gospel perspective will often be met with confusion. A good example of this, uh, what I think is happening here, is from the life of a missionary named John Patton. John Patton lived in the 1800s in Scotland, and he grew up in a strongly Christian culture. And in his early 30s, He sensed that the Lord was calling him to the mission field, specifically to a small island chain in the South Pacific on the far side of the world. The islands, which were then called the New Hebrides Islands, were famous among Christians in Scotland because a few years earlier, two other missionaries had set sail to live and serve there. However, the indigenous people who lived on these islands had a reputation for violence and cannibalism against outsiders, and those two missionaries were killed the day that they arrived. So even though Patton's countrymen were strong believers, when he began visiting Scottish churches and raising support for a new ministry on those islands, he was met with some skepticism. 
And he wrote in his journal about the outspoken church member named Mr. Dixon, who said to him, you will be eaten by cannibals if you go there. You'll be wasting your life. But Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Patton's perspective was shaped by the gospel, by his hope in the work of Christ to assure him a glorious eternity. And even though people in Scotland thought that he had lost his mind for wanting to go and work and live and serve among these famously violent and cannibalistic people, he was more sane and sober-minded than they were because he was seeing things from a gospel perspective. That perspective enabled him to take risks that the world thought were insane because he knew that he had already been assured more than he would ever give up. It enabled him to love the people that he went to serve in the way that Peter points out that all Christians should love. Verse 8 elevates the instruction saying, above all, love one another and do so earnestly. It's the same language that Peter used back in chapter 1 to describe, to describe the way that uh, once we understand Christ's love for us, once we internalize Christ's love for us, our relationships with one another will be shaped accordingly. We understand that in Christ, we've been forgiven of more and greater offenses than will ever be carried out against us, and knowing that frees us to earnestly love those who sin against us. And just as Christ's love covered a multitude of our sin, our love for one another covers the sin and the failures among us as we love as we should. And the outworking of that love will show itself in tangible ways, which Peter points out to us in verses 9 and 10. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, and as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The more we love one another, the more we will look for ways to leverage our stuff to bless other people. We will begin to see it as an opportunity rather than an obligation. And looking to Christ who gave everything in love for us, we will be able with joy in our hearts to love sacrificially with joy rather than grumbling. The more we rejoice in the fact that God has shown us hospitality, the mercy of welcoming us into his house and giving us a place at his table, the more we will be able to do so with joy for those who need it. That, according to 1 Peter, is what it looks like to be a steward of God's grace. That phrase caught my attention way back in July when we started this preaching series and Bruce and I were kind of laying out the schedule. I read through the book of 1 Peter and that, that phrase, it caught my attention because I think we often focus, rightly, on being recipients of God's grace, which we are. We sing songs about it, we pray words of thanksgiving, because we have done nothing to deserve God's favor or blessing, yet He pours it out for us. Instead, we have rebelled against His goodness and His holiness, choosing instead the idols that we make for ourselves, and we have earned His wrath 
for our pride. But in love that has covered a multitude of sins, God has shown us grace, which we receive by faith. By trusting in his love for us and in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we receive his grace. But according to this passage, we are not merely recipients of that grace. We are also stewards. We have been entrusted with it as God's agents of grace in the world to share it and live in it for the sake of our neighbors and for God's glory. So in the words that we speak, we convey the love of Christ and the wisdom of God's inspired word as those who speak oracles of God. We serve as Christ served with his heart and humility in the strength that God himself supplies. I love this verse because it's a reminder to me that God equips us for the work that he calls us to carry out. And the strength that we need to do the work that we're called to is in knowing his love for us and the assurance of our hope for eternity. It is an intimidating thing to realize that we've been called to follow Christ where he leads and then to realize where he himself walked. But our willingness to go there with him, trusting him to see us through it, to build us up, to give us strength, and to bring us to, to the glory waiting on the other side is what frees us to live in his will. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to, to sin, slaves to the passions of our fallen hearts. We will bend to the will of the idols that we make with our hands, the things that we use to define ourselves and try to take control of life, and willingly giving up control, giving up our demands for self-autonomy and self-preservation is a terrifying thing because we face the reality that God may call us to the other side of the world to live and serve among cannibals. But giving up our demands to pursue our human passions, we find the freedom to live in God's will, to see things as they truly are by being sober-minded in light of eternity, to know and to trust Christ's love for us that flows through us as earnest love for our neighbors and to live not merely as recipients of God's grace, but also as stewards charged with the responsibility of embodying Christ's love toward others, all for the glory of God. We arm ourselves for action, for the work that God calls us to carry out by thinking as Christ thinks and loving as He loves. We stand firm in the armor of God that we may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm, according to Ephesians 6. And we continue crucifying the desires of our fallen nature, giving up what we treasured before and receiving Christ, who is infinitely more satisfying. I don't know what you struggle with. The sin that you wrestle with may sometimes seem to have the upper hand, and it may seem to be your master. But it is worth the struggle. It is worth the fight and the pain to lay down our human passions because God really is a judge and eternity really is at stake. And in Christ, we become the people that he's called us to be. So when our culture responds with surprise and maligning, let us look to Christ who has gone before us through temptation, through suffering, 
and into glory. Let us be people who know Christ's love and whose joy in being loved is true, who embody that love to others. Let us be people who have tasted that the love of God is truly satisfying and are willing, therefore, to follow him through hell in order to be set free from slavery to sin and death, armed with Christ's way of thinking to the glory of God. Let me pray for you. God, we pray this morning this dangerous prayer, asking that you would stir our hearts, that you would help us to see the human passions that cling so closely, that you would help us recognize the grip that they have on us. And Lord, that you would give us a gospel perspective, eternal perspective, that helps us recognize and rejoice in what we receive from you as infinitely more satisfying than the, the human passions that we cling to here and now. It's a dangerous prayer because you often call your people to lay aside things that they used to love and things that grip our hearts. Uh, we, we pray that you would give us the strength to do that, the strength that you provide to build your people into the people that you've called us to be. God, we ask that you would continue that work in our midst this morning. We pray this prayer with expectation. In the name of your Son, amen.